Hey everyone, Chris here. Uh, first off, before we get into the show, I just want to say thank you to all of you who have tuned in this year. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the show, and Perry and I could not do this show without your listens, your support, your feedback. So as we come to the close of the year, I wanted to say thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. I know we've had a bit of a delay recently. Uh, I've had school. We've had some family emergencies. It's kind of kept Perry and I from recording together for a bit. But I think we're through a lot of those hurdles, and in January we're looking to get on a more regular schedule, and we have some really fun episodes in store for you. So, in the meantime, I would love it if you could help us out. Uh, if you could like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WatchingCast, uh, that's a great way to be part of the conversation. Let us know what movies we should be watching, what movies we should be talking about. Ask us any questions. Also, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes. This is a great way to help us get noticed and get a larger audience so that we can continue to do this show and continue to build the conversation up a bit. If you like what you're hearing and you want to contribute, we do offer a Patreon. The uh, link to that is in the show notes. Anything you can contribute is great. Again, it defrays the cost of seeing movies, cost of getting this thing edited. Uh, We'd greatly appreciate it. And finally, we want to hear from you. We want your feedback. This is our top 10 episode of the year. I want to hear your top 10. We want to share them on the air. So if you can email us at we'rewatchinghere at gmail.com, we'd love to hear from you, hear your thoughts, and share your thoughts on the air. Again, thank you so much for your support over the last year. I think 2020 is going to be an even greater year for this podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Chris. I'm Beth. And I'm Matt. Join us every Wednesday for Wasting Time, our podcast where we talk about pop culture, life, and our favorite things. From the movies we love to the TV shows we're obsessed with. And from politics to parenting to whatever else is on our mind. Give us a listen each Wednesday and then find us on Facebook and Twitter to tell us what you're loving. We're part of the Big Heads Media Group and we can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Come waste some time with us. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the Rick Dalton to my Cliff Booth. The Russell Buffalino to my Frank Sheeran, the Thomas Wake to my Ephraim Winslow, and the Grizzle Shanks to my Rum Tum Tugger, Perry Seibert. <laughs> I gladly take all of those roles. I realized that Grizzle, Grizzle Shanks and Rum Tum Tugger could easily be the name of the characters in the lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> they, they very well could. <laughs> This is our end-of-year extravaganza. This is our 10 favorite movies of 2019. And, Perry, it feels like the last two months I have done nothing but watch movies. Uh, I know. Isn't it the best? It is. (laughs) I agree. It's my favorite time of the year. It is so overwhelming, though. I've been trying to do, like, because I've had school, so I have caught up on far less than I've even wanted But even so, even with all the stuff I still haven't seen, like I still haven't gotten around to 1917, I haven't gotten around to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, 
or I never got a screener for Pain and Glory, and I still had trouble cutting my top ten list down. Interesting. I had uh, I had the opposite problem, where I went through my uh, so I, I I here's how I tend to do it. I for, first of all, I guess this is the time for this disclaimer, right? I, I don't believe in top ten lists. Okay. I think they're they're a game. They're mm-hmm. and I don't mean to say that I don't mean them. I just mean to say that they really don't accomplish anything. They're a snapshot. That's all they are. If I made this list tomorrow, it would be different. I literally made this list this morning. <laughs> Just because I figured that's the only safe way to do it. Um, and I looked through my list of everything I saw this year, and all I did was write down – I copied it over to another piece of paper if I thought – that's a film I'd think of as being in my top ten, and I had ten movies. <laughs> I didn't plan it that way, but that's just the way it worked out this time around. So, And I'll be honest, looking at the list, the to- my, my, top, my top five are the best of the best. The next three are like just a half step down from those. And honestly, my nine and ten spots could have gone to a, a whole bunch of different movies that on a different day might have I might have thought, yeah, that's a top ten film. Yeah, I'm the same way. My top ten or my, my number ten, it switched back and forth between what it ended up being and two or three movies that didn't even end up making my top ten list. And yeah, yeah, yeah the whole idea is top 10 lists are kind of an obligatory critics thing. You know, we do them. Um, they're kind of fun to do, but same thing. Like I've been putting together spoiler alert in about a month or so, we're going to do a top 10 of the decade. And I can look back and say, you know, a lot of films I didn't even rank in my top 10 that year show yeah. up on my, on my best of the decade. So it's a purely arbitrary thing. Uh, baggage settles over time. And absolutely. Uh, but it's still it's fun and uh, oh so yeah, much fun! It's a nice way just to talk about <laughs> talk about the year. Um, so yeah, uh, we do want to have the caveat that we have not seen Cats yet. So we're kind of writing this. <laughs> it's the assumption that that's our number one pick. So <laughs> it's the Cats memorial list. Um, uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll see. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. I, I'm, I'm just saying. I think Martin Scorsese really drew on the digital fur technology for de-aging <laughs> the Irishman. And... I mean, yeah. I mean, if you enjoy a rosy, a digitally rosy-faced Robert De Niro, then yes, you're going to love an Idris Elba that's been morphed into a half feline. It's just something you didn't know you what It's something you didn't know you didn't want to see until it was thrown in front of you during a trailer. And if you think James <laughs> Corden is adorable now, wait till you see him as a cat. There is no way. Oh, there is no way that's annoying. There's... The whole the whole everything about this movie bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I everything except Idris Elba and what annoys me about Idris Elba is that he's in it. Like otherwise <laughs> I I I I just I have every almost everybody else in that cast is an uphill climb for me, like, and it's just oh oh I I there's I oh there oh we finally found a film that will challenge my patience more than uh the uh, uh the, the, the 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 Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> the last time I was like, no, I'm just not gonna go see it. I don't care. I can't possibly care, and I'm really close to that point with cats, and it oh, takes I, a lot for me to get to that point with a movie. I am so there. I, uh, I a little inside baseball. Perry and I had uh, two Detroit film critics screening days where we sat down and watched something like seven or eight films within two days, and I was positive Universal was going to force cats on us that day. 
And I think that might have been the only way I could have endured it was to be I, in a room with th- other people who hate it. I think they're hiding. I, I don't think it's it's got any serious awards consideration. They'll try for the song. But otherwise, I think they're doing this what they did to last to a uh, uh, greatest showman. I think they're going to assume that this is going to have a giant audience that is um, uh, 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 th- that will come regardless. And so they'll just play it safe and not take the the abuse they would take for putting themselves out front so grandly and just collect a lot of money, which I'm sure it will probably do. It, let's put, let's put it this way. It'll probably make more money than, uh, than the Marwin movie <laughs> <laughs> last Christmas. Well, if okay. there's any justice. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll talk about good movies. Now we will get into our top 10 list. And the way this works is Perry and I are going to just kind of switch off and if one of us has a movie that is a little bit higher on the other person's list, we'll wait until that person's list to talk about it. Um, but Perry, why don't, why don't you kick us off? What was your number 10? Uh, I tossed the tennis ball in the air and slap a serve to you, Chris, with my number 10 spot, uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. A first film from a director named Joe Talbot, co-written with uh, a man named Jimmy Fales, who is the co-star uh, of the film, along with uh, Jonathan Majors. This was an indie that came, I think, out of Sundance early in the year. Uh, it, it's it's on my list because it's easily one of the five, if not three, best photograph films I saw all year. The cinematography is gorgeous. It's this great little arty tale about uh, a man who is trying to reconcile with his past and find his place in uh, – in uh, a very gentrified San Francisco. <laughs> and uh, it, it doesn't, it's, it's the kind of film that does not take place in the real world, although it comments a lot on the real world. And if you pick up on some hints in the movie and go do some research, you, you will be rewarded for doing so. Uh, and uh, that's all, that all comes after the actual experience of watching the movie, which as I said, is a joy because it just looks so good. Uh, they just know where to put the camera in a different and unusual place and how to light everything so that it's just this great sort of fairy tale-ish but not otherworldly universe that they build, which is exactly right for the tone of the writing in the movie. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great first film. Uh, I, I think it's the most exciting. It, it's, it is the highest ranking first film on my list <laughs> uh, this year. And it's uh, it was just a pleasure to discover. I, I it's one of those things where I I knew very little about it going in and was just completely impressed by the opening sequence and that just rode that wave for two hours. It's a really it's a really great movie. Oh, that's the last black man in San Francisco, and it has been throughout the fall one of those movies that was always the next one I was going to catch up with. Uh, it, it, it was one of those ones, the screener came and I had my stack and kind of kept priority prioritization kept changing. And then I just still haven't caught up with that one, but I really want to see that. I have heard great things about it. Um, so I, that just kind of adds it in. I'll have to catch up on it really quick then. Um, so my number 10, uh, is also the same as your number nine. And that is James Gray's Ad Astra. Um, yes, indeed. The the sci-fi movie from this fall. Uh, this is really, to me, this is the movie I hoped Interstellar would be a few years ago. Uh, Chris Nolan's Interstellar, which I was hoping would be this 
grounded sci-fi movie that would feel somewhat plausible uh, and maybe kind of have a little bit more depth to it. <laughs> and I didn't get that with Interstellar. I, I got... I, I, I got a nice try with Interstellar. That that didn't quite work for me. Uh, Ad Astra is a movie that really, I enjoyed it sitting with it, but then over the next few weeks, it was a movie that did not leave me. And I think a lot of that is due to Brad Pitt's performance. Uh, we're going to probably talk a lot more about Brad Pitt later in this podcast as well. But I think this is a, this, this might be one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances. Uh, he... He takes all that charisma he has uh, so naturally in other roles, and he just shuts it off. And he is just kind of pared down to a nub as this efficient, expert person. But it's it's depression played as efficiency. Uh, there's there's this void in him, even as he's so competent, even as he's so focused on his mission. Uh, I, I really think Brad Pitt is great, and then he's thrown into this movie with world building that I, I just I couldn't get enough of. Uh the vision of the moon in this movie with its Applebee's and all its advertising, it felt very sadly plausible. Uh there are genre tropes that James Gray throws in that are employed in ways I haven't seen before. I think you and I briefly talked about this movie before I saw it, and you had mentioned the car chase. Yes. And it is like nothing I have seen before. Like the way they employ those vehicles on the moon is this haunting, terrifying, and yet exciting car chase. Uh, Brad Pitt reunites with the space monkeys again uh, in a scene that is just one of the most unexpected and terrifying moments I had at a movie all year. Um, and, and then it just it keeps pushing and it pushes into some very spiritual themes. Uh, this is a movie about someone searching for a God who probably isn't there or at worst is disinterested in us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's final passages with Tommy Lee Jones. I, they're really powerful and really haunting um, that I'll even forgive when it kind of turns into a superhero movie at the end of the movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really, I loved Ad Astra. It, it stuck with me much longer than I thought. And uh, I, I just, I really appreciate that this is, what James Gray decided to do with the sci-fi genre. Um, I will say that where we differ is this is a film that I, uh, I, 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 I don't love. I like, I respect. Uh, I, I, it's one that the, the last, mm, there, there is a, there's the best scene in the movie happens with about an hour to go. <laughs> that sequence when he records the message on Mars. That's, yeah. That's going to be sent out and the and the aftermath of doing that, um, that I think the film reaches everything it's trying for, where it is. It is suddenly close to actually being Tarkovsky. It's close to being Kubrick. It's close to being the psychological sci fi film that I knew James Gray was capable of of making. And then for me, that last passage with Tommy Lee Jones, while fine, there is nothing wrong with it. The problem is. It's it's uh, it is too perfectly written. There's no other way the film can end. There's no drama for me in the last 45 minutes of this movie. I've realized where it has to go. And that inevitability is, you know, exactly the opposite of and not that it's fair to hold the film up to this standard. But I think this film is asking to be held up to that standard. You know, this is why the ending of 2001 has remained amazing forever because <laughs> mm. 
it's totally logical, but you still, A, don't know what's going to happen, and B, still can't quite explain it. <laughs> yeah. And this film is so steeped in psychology and in uh, – you express it beautifully. You know, it's a man on a search for God, and but I kind of know from how they've set it up that he's going to come to a place where he's okay with that. And I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything by saying that. Because you know? <laughs> I think the film makes it really obvious. And so that's my only – that's what keeps it for me when I said you know, my top eight are a step above my nine and ten. That's the step that's keeping it just, just underneath. It just doesn't quite break through into saying this is an amazing movie. I think it's a great movie. I'm so glad James Gray made it. He's one of my favorite directors. Uh, uh, and I agree wholeheartedly on Brad Pitt who I – We'll talk again. We'll talk about Brad Pitt a lot more in a little bit. This is, I can't think of a better Brad Pitt vehicle. I can't think of a performance where he owns the screen like this. And as you said, does so with so little. He does not, it's not a big performance by any means. And even the big showcase scene, which you know he's going to get, he is not hysterical. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a little amped up, but it is still far removed from scenery chewing hand be my oscar work uh it's really great it's a re it's a really fantastic piece of acting uh which is the other reason it is higher up than any other film that isn't quite breaking through that threshold for me into outright four star greatness fair enough fair enough and yeah i i think it is when you start getting to the nines and tens there's that imperfection that kind of is in a little more of these movies. And I, my number 10 for the longest time was a movie we might talk about if we get to honorable mentions. But it was a movie that I think is probably technically better and left me a lot colder. Um, mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it was the fact that I, I kept wrestling. I was really I, I was really impressed with the way this film was kind of a metaphor for atheism, um, which I, I found fascinating to wrestle with. But uh, but yeah, it definitely those last twenty thirty minutes get shaky, um, especially about the time he's surfing through the universe. Uh, get, <laughs> get, gets a little shaky there. Um, so that was year number nine. My number nine has a bit of a link to Ad Astra, but I think we're gonna be talking about that one a little bit later. So what was your number eight? Uh, our number eights are actually the same. Yes, they are. <laughs> Which is super exciting. I was amazed, and I think. Uh, I, I don't want to say disappointed, but a little like, oh, I'm both ha I'm both happy and disappointed by how this works out, <laughs> much much like my reaction to a movie on your list that we'll get to in a little bit. But yes, we both have the lighthouse. Yes. at number eight. Yes. Uh, why don't what, what did you love about the lighthouse? Um, here's the thing. This is the film on the list that probably uh, was the one that grew on me the most. Okay. I. Uh, and it is my great regret that I have not seen it a second time because I know that I missed chunks of really good dialogue. I just couldn't understand it some of the time in the theater I was in. And uh, that was frustrating. <laughs> so I'm, I am eager to see it a second time. And that's always a big deal for me. If I get to see a film a second time, that really will solidify it being on a list like this for me or not. But I was I, – I don't think – there is a film whose images have stuck with me more this year Same. than the lighthouse. Uh, and I love as, as, as I, uh, <laughs> I heard, I, I remember reading about people talking about it online and social media 
and somebody was asking everybody to dig in on this and they were fighting about it back and forth. And I said, look, I'm a film nerd. You had me at the 1.19 to one <laughs> aspect ratio, Which, you know, and using lenses from the 1920s. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Do that. Now, granted, that wouldn't be enough for it to make my list, let alone make it high enough that I say it's in my it's in my four star range. Uh, it's there because he managed Robert Eggers, the director, managed to make a film that feels like the follow up to his excellent first film, The Witch, mm-hmm. and isn't the same film. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. that's great. I feel like we have solidified a really great voice that I am eager to see continue to develop and grow over the coming years. It's not quite a horror film, not the way The Witch is. Um, it's the film this year that I think owes more to David Lynch than any film I've seen in a really long time. Uh, and for all those reasons, I, I don't even, you know, as good as the performers are, I don't even think of it as their movie because I didn't get caught up in the real emotional struggle going on there. <laughs> this was a real, this was a real cerebral game for me to play to watch this movie. It was like, okay, well, what is he getting at? What does that mean? Because you're so far, you are constantly reminded because of the cinematography that you are having a, 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 you know, a, an aesthetic experience. <laughs> you're not with these characters per se. You are forced to sort of experience and enter their mindscape. And uh, that's, uh, that's a really, really ambitious thing for any director to do, uh, especially on their second film, especially on a budget that I'm assuming was pretty shoestring. Oh, yeah. For how this, yeah. for how good this film looks, and uh, all that makes the lighthouse for me one of the great cinematic experiences of the year. Yeah, I, I'm totally on board with you there. Um, I was a big fan of The Witch when it came out, which is really just a delicious slow burn of a movie that just kind of keeps twisting and turning and upping the tension until it kind of hits that last twenty minutes. The lighthouse is kind of a fever dream from the start. And yeah. I watched this at night. I watched this on a screener late at night on my couch, and I'm still not convinced I didn't dream half of the things that are in this movie. <laughs> uh, just like, like you're saying, that cinematography, that claustrophobic aspect ratio, the black and white photography, it just makes you feel soggy at the end of the movie. Um, but it just it careens between tones. It's not that slow burn of the witch. It's at times very funny and it's a very dark comedy about a roommate from hell basically and yeah. then it descends into madness in ways that really just unnerved me uh, he plays with visuals like you were saying in this movie in a way that just they sear themselves on your brain like there's a scene where one character is pummeling another one and he begins hallucinating things and the images on there <laughs> just are so shocking and so so bizarre. And then I don't know if there's been a final image this year that has haunted me the way that last shot does. It, it just... Oh, okay. Such a horrifying final shot. Um, but I could also watch Willem Dafoe do this character over and over. Uh, he, is, <laughs> he, is the, uh, he is the sea captain from The Simpsons possessed by the devil. <laughs> It's so like I could not like you. I could not make out half of the things he was saying, but I love that he was saying them. Exactly. I feel like I got it, even yeah. if I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> the, I mean, 
Robert Eggers is really becoming a go-to person for kind of capturing this American folklore, these horrifying American stories. And I think the thing that he does is he just draws you into the insanity of that moment. Um, and I think he does it differently with the witch than he does here, but I think they are both just kind of overwhelming visions. And, uh, I, I, you know, there's a lot of the, quote, new horror that's out there that kind of leaves me cold, but he's someone who I keep wanting to see what he's going to do next. And, yeah. And I love his... an ear for dialogue is a terrible phrase because that sounds like... It sounds like people speaking like people normally speak. And no, both of these... Both of his films are written in this great, super stylized verbiage and totally different from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's, that's what the Cone brothers do. Like, it's, yeah. it's a... He he he, and uh, this is of course co-written with his brother Max. This is a it's 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 an impressive. I bet it would be an impressive read. Uh, you know, as for as much as we gush about the visuals, I bet it's I bet it's a pretty good screenplay read too. Oh yeah, yeah, and and I do feel like Defoe gets a lot of the attention, but I think Pattinson is really strong here too, because uh, he he has to really play that descent into madness, whereas Defoe's kind of there already, but. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, there, there's a scene with Pattinson just dancing, and it's it's unhinging just to watch him do this kind of delirious dance and feel <laughs> that cabin fever. I, I yeah, I really dug this movie. Cool. Uh, so next up is number seven, and uh, why don't I take this? We have some similarities too. It's not the same movie, but I think the uh, the similarities are kind of interesting. So. My number seven is the documentary Amazing Grace. Uh, this is the documentary that covers the recording of Aretha Franklin's best-selling gospel album over two nights in Los Angeles uh, about 50 years ago. And this movie's backstory is really fascinating because Sidney Pollack filmed this as a documentary, but he had no experience doing a documentary at that point did not sync the sound up correctly, and this movie was thought lost to time. The album went on to become a huge success, but this making of document was thought lost to time until probably, I think it was about five, six years ago, producer stepped in, began the meticulous process of restoring it, then it got caught up in legal wrangles with Aretha Franklin's family until I think just last year it was released at a film festival and had its uh, theatrical release this year. Um, and the result is something that is really amazing to watch. Uh, if this were just 90 minutes of Aretha Franklin singing gospel songs, it could still find its way on my list, I'm sure. Because that <laughs> voice, that voice singing these songs is just one of the great experiences. I saw this in a movie, th in a theater. I, d I didn't see it on screener. Um, and the result was like a church service. It was people were swaying in the theater. I am a very reserved person when I sit in a the movie theater and I was tapping my toes and kind of swaying along because it, there's just something about that voice. But what I really love about this movie is it is a testament to the hard work of making art. Um, the key image to this movie is Aretha Franklin's face coated in perspiration. She is sweating. Mm -hmm. She is throwing herself into this. And then throughout the movie, you see it's not just her working. It's James Cleveland's backup choir uh, that is working alongside with her. It's the choir masters who are 
making sure every note is hit. The young kid who brings her, it wasn't a young kid, in my mind it was, but uh, the person who brings her a water because she's getting thirsty. There are points in the movie where you see a producer gesturing wildly at a cameraman to get a certain shot. And you just begin to see all the work to bring this together. And yet, if you listen to that album, it sounds effortless. It sounds very (laughs) organic. Um, And this also has just one of my favorite shots of the year, uh, which which is looking out at the crowd. And it's this packed church in Los Angeles. And it's mostly people there to hear Aretha Franklin's music. But the camera starts to focus. And you realize along the back wall is a young Mick Jagger. And he's clapping. (laughs) But as soon as your brain registers that it's Mick Jagger, everyone else in the crowd stands up. And blocks the view of him. Almost like, yeah, yeah, it's not about him. Um, so I found I, I found this to just be a wonderful experience. Just a wonderful concert film. It went beyond that. And then as someone who really appreciates the songs she's singing and the context behind them, I, I really found it felt like a church service. And it was one of the most fantastic uh, film-going experiences I had all year. And uh, it has not, it has not left me since uh, April. So I highly recommend it. It's didn't get much of a release, but it's out there and it's on DVD now. So I, I would really recommend people check it out. I'm eager to see it. It's the one film on your list I have not seen. Okay. And so, and I, that's, uh, that's on me. I, 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 I would, there's nothing about this. I don't want to see. I just haven't gotten to it yet. I'm sure it's as excellent as you say. It is fantastic. But what was your seven though? Well, my seven is also a, a music documentary that also repurposes old footage, and that is Martin Scorsese's uh, Rolling Thunder review. Or oh. sorry, it's, it's a, a Rolling Rolling Thunder review, a Bob Dylan film by Martin Scorsese. I forget the full title on all this. Uh, this was the Netflix release in the summer that coincided with the release of Dylan's uh, the the massive box set of six full shows from the Rolling Thunder review concerts in the mid seventies. Uh, uh, this is, I will admit, this is probably the most idiosyncratic film on the list for me. Uh, you know, these are two, two artists I, I, I greatly adore, (laughs) uh, working together, not for the first time. And what I love about it is, and uh, we can go back to, uh, for those who heard just joining us for the first time, go back and listen to our episode on documentaries to find out, uh, my tortured history with that particular style of filmmaking. And this does uh, this does what I want a documentary to do. I want it. I, I, I want documentaries to address the fact that they are creations. I, 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 I feel that documentaries get a lot of mileage out of the belief that they take for granted that we think everything there is true and real and captured in the moment uh, when a good documentary can be just as manufactured as as any fiction film. Uh, this film splits that hair in a really glorious and hilarious way uh, that uh, that some viewers may not even grasp <laughs> because Bob doesn't want you to. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dylan Dylan has always, from the beginning, uh, you know, he's been a fabricated figure. He has controlled his public persona really strongly. And so he has almost always done that. No, he's always done that in order to get you to pay attention to the music as much as possible. He, you know, he, he has accepted that he was 
had to be figure he, he was he was considered the voice of a generation and his response to that was to go away for two years <laughs> to fake a motorcycle accident and stay out of the public limelight for a while because even he couldn't control it anymore uh this is some of the best music that dylan ever made is in this period it's arguably the best live band he ever had at his disposal and uh the the live music performances are are just uh they're revelatory if you don't if you don't know this period you're going to hear songs like you've never heard them before and you're going to come across songs that you maybe didn't know about and you're like oh what's what's that from all of the songs from desire which was the big album at the time are you know are are done better live than they are on the record and they're real good on the record <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that record and as it goes on, you may start to question what it is you're watching, <laughs> and you're supposed to, and that is that is half the fun of this journey. I love this movie because it is a wonderful mix of an amazing concert documentary mixed with, um, you know, uh, one of my – I have a dear friend, Stephen Thomas Erlewine, the music critic, who once said of Jack White – I said, what do you think of Jack White? And he said, well – He's full of bullshit, but his bullshit is so much more entertaining than almost anybody else's. <laughs> and that's a lot of what's going on with Dylan in this period. That's a lot of what's going on with Dylan most of the time. So, yes, as a as a perfect companion piece to uh, to the Dylan bio, uh, the Dylan documentary that Scorsese made a few years ago, No Direction Home, you can't do better at getting uh, summing up two very different eras of Dylan in a really great, hugely entertaining and incredibly cinematic way. Rolling Thunder review. It's on Netflix now. Well, I'm really glad. I know you're a big fan of Martin Scorsese, so I was really glad you were able to get a film of his on the list this year. I know, uh, I know. It's you, so good that we can do get at least one on every year. The man doesn't disappoint. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, we're, that brings us to number six. And uh, what's your number six? Uh, my number six appears higher on your list, and so. Uh, while you while you continue, I'm going to go find out what that strange noise in the basement is. <laughs> sounds good, sounds good. And I will talk about my number six, which is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Um, this is just the most pure fun I've had watching a movie all year. Uh, this is the only movie on my list that I have seen twice uh, because I saw it when uh, when we got the screener for it. And then last night, my wife and I were thinking of something to watch. I realized she hadn't seen it yet, and I thought it was one she would really dig. So we watched it again, and I liked it even better on a second viewing. Um, I I saw this movie on the same day that I saw the trailer released for the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. And I cannot wait for Daniel Craig to hang up his tuxedo and just make Benoit Blanc movies for the rest <laughs> of his career. Um, yeah, Knives Out is just, it's, it is a love letter to parlor mysteries. There's a little bit of Hitchcock in there. Uh, Ryan Johnson loves genre. And I, I think he is fantastic at storytelling, just weaving a very clever tale at guiding the audience through that story, through finding a very interesting way to tell it that I don't even through a character who I don't even think was included in any of the marketing materials. I I just I had such a great time with this. I had 
so much fun with the twists and turns it took, with the way he spins it from whodunit to thriller, back to whodunit. The comedy really worked for me. Um, I think Daniel Craig is a delight in this. I love that foghorn, leghorn accent of his. Um, I think on the second viewing, I saw how intricately that the mystery fits together and holds up. Uh, This is a rare movie where I spent the last half hour just slapping my knees and laughing at every reveal. And uh, it's a great time. Um, But on top of that, what I love too is it's, it's a genre piece. It's fluffy. It's not overly important. And yet it is a movie that is also about something. Uh, There's very unsubtle political subtext to this movie. But more importantly, it's a movie about decency, about (laughs) kindness. Uh, It really is a movie about a kind person and kind of an ode to her kindness. And uh, I just had a blast with this. Uh, I, I... I really had a good time with this movie. I enjoyed every minute of it. And I would love to see Ryan Johnson uh, bring this character back again. Uh, and I, I will, uh, all, all I will say is that looking over your top 10, this would be my least favorite film on your list. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I uh... Here's the thing for me with knives out. It's the film where I finally figured it out how I felt about Ryan Johnson. Okay. And that's every single one of his films. And I realize that I, I both like them and I'm disappointed by them. Oh really? And I, and I, they're all, uh, you know, there's, I, I I mostly like them. I don't like all of them, but I mostly like them. Um, and I think with the the exception of brick, his first movie, which is a, a great first movie. And, is exactly what it wants to be. And I think it's, it's my favorite of his movies. Uh, it's, they are always fabulous ideas with a fabulous opening 30 minutes. And then I feel like he just kind of rides that through the rest of the film. I never feel like they develop. I never feel like they really go anywhere. I never feel like they're really about anything. (laughs) Uh, and so I was like, okay, that was, fun it wasn't as well i finished knives out and i was like the trailer was more entertaining than the movie and all the 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 entire trailer is in the is in the first 30 minutes of the movie and i was that's what that's that was my experience with it and uh i didn't hate it but i was like oh (laughs) i wanted i wanted better from it i yeah i i adored it um i think a lot of that comes from it did not it went directions that I didn't think it was going to go, and it turned into something different than I thought it was going to be. Um, and I had a great time with it, but I, I think different filmmakers can hit us differently. But oddly enough, Ryan Johnson's earlier movies, uh, Looper really sits that way with me, the same way his other ones sit with you, where I think it's a great idea that just kind of doesn't do much more with it. But uh, I was a big fan of Knives Out. I was a huge fan of Last Jedi. So, yeah, he is uh, he's one of those filmmakers I love to... Uh, I love to see when he has a new new one out. But I love uh, I I I adore so much of Brothers Bloom, and I loved it at the time a great deal. But you know, ten years on from Brothers Bloom, I'm like, I don't even remember the last thirty minutes of that movie. <laughs> 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 Everything I love about it is is crammed into that first forty five minutes, and I do 
I do. I like Last Jedi, which I assume means that I don't like the Star Wars films as a whole, right? Because <laughs> you're right. supposed to hate Last Jedi if you like Star Wars. Just because it's a it's an absolute love letter for Mark Hamill. It was so <laughs> great to watch Mark Hamill to realize the extent to which he has become much a better, so much a better actor than when he was made to be an icon <laughs> in the late seventies. And that, that was the fun part of Jedi for me. Uh, I, I've never cared for Looper. <laughs> I think Looper is, Looper is just another time travel movie for me. <laughs> I will always have a soft spot for uh, Ryan Johnson because of Ozymandias, uh, that episode of breaking bad that he directed, which is, I can, un- I can understand that. Absolutely my favorite hour of TV of the dire- of the decade. Um, <laughs> but that's Knives Out, and we are now, though, we are entering the top five. So you had said the top five are your top five, and I'm really the same way. So why don't my you... Top... Go ahead. My top five are my top five, and I will be very honest with you. Like I was saying earlier, this list would look different tomorrow. The order of these five films could be different tomorrow. Yeah. I really... There's... there's... There is not a lot of separation between these five for me. Uh, so I just want to be clear that the numbers, the numbers mean nothing. Don't worry. <laughs> don't, don't get hung up on placement. Yep. I'm um, the same way. My, my top three, cool. I had each of them at one at one point. So, uh, that, and that's same here. My top, any of my top three could have been my number one and my four and five could easily have been two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I have at five Sebastian Lello's remake of his own film, Gloria, a film called Gloria Bell with Julianne Moore that came out oh so long ago, <laughs> March or April, um, that I, I was unfamiliar with Lello's original movie. I, not so unfamiliar. I hadn't seen it. Uh, I still have not seen it. Uh, but this is just a this, – this is the slice of life movie. This is – a couple of months in the life of a middle-aged woman who is doesn't have it all together, but isn't falling apart. This isn't, you know, this isn't a Cassavetes film where we're watching somebody slowly disintegrate. We are watching a flawed and very real human being uh, embodied by arguably, you can make the case that Julianne Moore's the best American actress. <laughs> you you can make that case if you want to. Uh, there's a moment, Chris, early in this movie where she is in uh, she's in like a, a, a Pilates class or uh, some kind of class like that. And the instructor gives her a compliment uh, as she's passing by her and she beams. She's, she is so happy to get this compliment. And it is it is one of those moments where I just it's my favorite thing an actor can do where I feel like I've seen something incredibly intimate and incredibly in the moment. And, and I, I am, I, for a moment I'm thrown. I don't think I'm watching a movie. (laughs) I think I'm watching a real human being react in a really human and real way. And the movie had me from that moment on. And this movie's full of moments like that. Uh, It is, it is my favorite performance of the year by anybody. And it's been a good year. For performers, there have been a lot of really good performances this year. But Julianne Moore and Gloria Bell, I believe it's on Prime. It was for a really long time. I believe you're right. Uh, oh, good. It is, uh, it, is, it, is, it is the kind of movie that they say no longer gets made. And this got made because Julianne Moore saw the original film and said, I want to play that part, got the director to do it again, 
and uh, she has enough juice to get this done. And oh, I'm so glad she does. This is this is the sleeper film of the year for me. Like nobody saw this and uh, everybody should. And if there were any justice in the world, Julianne Moore would be among the front runners for the Oscar this year for best actress, Gloria Bell, please check it out. Well, when you say no one saw this, this is another one that slipped by me, even though you mentioned it on our podcast right after you saw it. um, It it is one, it's another one that was probably right under uh, last black man in San Francisco as to, I need to get around to this and got lost to school obligations and things like that but it is on amazon prime i did just double check that and excellent i will not pass up an opportunity to watch julianne moore do her thing because and i think she's always pretty much fantastic and an absolutely beautiful supporting performance by john turturro in the movie as her as the love interest in the movie uh turturro's another actor i just adore and we tend to think of him, you know, in Cone Brothers mode, <laughs> mm-hmm. being very broad and big, which he's great at, too. Uh, he's a fabulous actor who's made a bunch of really good movies. All of his movies that he's directed are interesting and worth a look. Uh, and he, he's just the ideal support for her in this movie. It's this just beautiful middle age, uh, middle age appropriate <laughs> pairing for the for the relationship that they have in the movie. And, ah, oh, it's just, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's just an amazing showcase for these actors. It's a beautiful script. And for me, this is the film that contains my favorite last shot of the year. Okay. Oh, and I will just leave you with that. And it is not, uh, it's not having her face pecked off by crows. So that's all <laughs> I'm going to say. And I'll leave it at that. Well, I was into it until you said that. I'm like, oh, do I want to... <laughs> Uh, so my number five is different than that, but it's another smaller movie. Uh, one that has, that really, I think the words I used when I talked about it on the podcast, when we talked about it briefly, was it's a movie I'm deeply thankful for. And that is Lulu Wang's The Farewell. Uh, the the story of a family who lies to their grandma because she's going to die. <laughs> yeah, if you put it that way. <laughs> but uh, this, this really beautiful story about a family of uh, Chinese immigrants who go back to China because their grandmother is going to die and they don't tell her in that culture you don't you don't tell them and so they they plan this faux wedding bank actually it's a real wedding banquet which kind of adds to some of the tension in the movie as this kind of I re, you know this exa- excuse sorry to have a family reunion so they can be around her one last time and enjoy joy their time together. Um, this is one of those movies where I don't have this experience. I'm, I'm going to lay a shocker out there. I'm not Chinese. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and there's a lot in this movie that, you know, it's not my experience. And yet Lulu Wang's script and her direction dig so deep into the specifics here that they find the universal. Um, I'm not, I don't come from a family of immediate immigrants. You know, my family came here generations ago. But I do come from a family with tensions and histories and wrestling with our places in culture. And she understands how families work and how they work that tension out. And she filters it all through Aquafina's performance as a young woman who doesn't quite know her identity and is wrestling with 
the American side of her and the Chinese side of her and what it means to be that family that left to go off and find uh, something else in America. And it's a really beautiful performance. I think the family is really well realized here. I think Zhao Suzanne, uh, she captures everything that is strong and loving and wonderful about grandmothers. Um, I, I sat here <laughs> watching this movie. Uh, I saw it almost to the day that both of my grandmothers had died a year ago. And, and so I was already kind of kind of raw at that point. And for a movie just to say, oh, aren't grandmothers a great thing? <laughs> and remind you how great it is <laughs> to have a grandmother. I loved that. But I just loved just how perceptive this movie was. The little details, the the really awkward wedding banquet that comes out at the end where there's awkwardness <laughs> there but there's joy there and it's kind of all mingling at once and then a final reveal that kind of changes your whole perception about the whole movie when you learn the real life story and and the whole context in which the movie was made and uh it's just it, it's a beautiful little movie it has probably the most heartbreaking shot of the year for me which is a woman waving goodbye in the in the seen through the back windshield of a car as a family drives away. And, and that shot killed me. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, yeah, this is just a, a beautiful little movie that I, I really enjoyed. And like I said, I'm very thankful for it. Uh, I, I think it is a really charming little movie. And that's The Farewell. It is. It is It is a, it is a, it's rock solid. I, 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 I there are just films I liked more. Yep. <laughs> I have nothing bad to say about the farewell uh, other than, you know, if you want to complain about the digital effects and the Irishman, the last shot of this film is terribly, terribly off putting. But <laughs> aside from that, <laughs> and and maybe if you want to dig deeper, you know, you, you mentioned this, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and and, uh, and run with it. You know, once you get the story behind the story. It's one of those things where, well, that's actually way more interesting than the story. Oh, yeah. I want a, I want a documentary about the making of the movie. And I feel like that's almost like, – like, there's just something sort of off about it. I, I don't I, – I, I understand why the ending is the way it is. And I'm not saying it should be different, but I also think it kind of <sighs> – I I, I, I I think I would like the film better were that not the case. That's I think the enough. film I, I just think that it I think it is I think it's such a gentle, beautiful movie that letting viewers off the hook in the way that ending does is a disservice to how delicately and beautifully you've dealt with really hard stuff in a really gentle and loving way for an hour and a half. That's kind of what that's that's kind of the that's what's that's what nags me about the movie, which is to say it's a great movie. <laughs> See it. Aquafina is fantastic in it. And that's a sentence I never thought I would say in this life. That so- <laughs> was that was what kept me away from the movie for for a while, which was I don't know that I want to go. Like, And that's probably just me being an old man who's grumpy and doesn't want to go see an Aquafina movie. Uh <laughs> But I'm glad I changed my mind because, yeah, I, I was very grateful for the time I spent with these characters. And uh, yes, I, I and, and it's the rare movie on our list that I think the entire family can sit around and watch this movie, and everyone's going to walk away probably a little little happier for it. Yeah, 
no nobody under 18 well, but okay. yeah yes. <laughs> let's not say everybody but okay, let's okay. say yes the, the older generations can all sit together yes our age can sit down with our parents for sure yes yes, yes. what is your number four perry uh, my number four, uh, and again, this could have ended up anywhere in the, in the top five, truthfully, is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This was your number nine film. Correct. Uh, uh, we, we, we've talked to death about this film already. Uh, I will just reiterate, I, I, you know, my favorite post, the best, you know, post Jackie Brown film for me from Tarantino is Inglorious Bastards because – it's an absolute love letter to the power of movies, uh, both literally and metaphorically. And I think that this this is the equal to it because it is a love letter to actors, uh, uh, both real and imagined. And I I can't I, you know, I I looking over my list, I always realize my top ten lists are always populated by films that I think no other director could have made, <laughs> and this film would not be made by anybody else. <laughs> it would not be conceived of or created in this manner by anybody other than Quentin Tarantino. And it is a pleasure to watch him uh, have this much fun. Uh, r- rarely do I feel like his, 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 his manias and his inside stuff is there uh, just for him. He's always, he's always itching for a reaction from you. Uh, in a way that I don't find cloying, in a way I like. Uh, but this time around, boy, I don't – this movie just feels like he doesn't care if anybody ever sees it. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just feels like something he really wanted to make. And uh, this is one I have seen twice. And uh, I, I was so happy with how much I enjoyed it the second time because I really loved it the first time. <laughs> and uh, it just I, – it holds together beautifully – it's a great period piece. It contains arguably the best work of DiCaprio's career, uh, and it lets Brad Pitt be an iconic superhero. Come on. What more do we want when we go to the <laughs> movies than to watch actors do that? I will totally co-sign on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, if it, The reason it is lower on my list, uh, A, might just be recency bias, uh, that I haven't seen it since the summer. Uh, and it was just one that yeah, other things came in and kind of took over that. But I also did find the last 30 minutes to have that moment, the, the, the violence toward women in that has kind of not settled with me in, in, in the pre- last few months. Uh, I, I think back to the movie and I think back to two hours of a purely enjoyable, it very well acted, very meticulously put together movie that culminates into the things that I have problems with, with Tarantino, which is the graphic violence, the kind of gleeful violence toward women. Um, And I don't know what to do with that because that's part of what Tarantino does when he makes a movie. And there's so much of what he does when he makes a movie that I enjoy. Uh, So the movie's still on my top 10 list, mainly because I think DiCaprio and Pitt are so good together that the, their relationship is so well created that you know their power dynamics. You know, you get a feel for their history, and they don't give you a lot of blatant information. You pick this up through the way they work together. 
Um, so there's so much I like in it that even the stuff that curdles a bit with me still can't keep it off the top ten list because it when that movie works, it is so enjoyable. And <laughs> um, I was deeply chagrined when we put together our Detroit Film Critics Society rankings for this year, and I totally spaced on nominating DiCaprio. Um, oh. I, I put my list out, and then when we got the results back and saw who the nominees were and I saw DiCaprio on there, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally did not put him on there. I don't know. I had Pitt on there, but I don't know why I didn't have DiCaprio. So I was able to rectify that. But uh, it it is a fantastic performance. And I think Margot Robbie is really good in the small role, too. I I think a lot like Anna Paquin this year, she kind of got a lot of criticism for having a role that didn't have a ton for her. But I think the way she's used in that role particularly when she sits there watching the real Sharon Tate on screen. It is a testament to the power of movies and Tarantino's ability to kind of give real life the ending he that it didn't get. I think we talked about not that he wishes it got, but to write another ending. And I think there are moments in this movie that are among the best he's done. Uh, the Spawn Ranch scene is an all-timer for him. The Spawn Ranch sequence is the best horror film of the year. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I have no other. I have no other statement than that. <laughs> and with a, with a great turn by Bruce Dern, I didn't mm. even mean to rhyme, yet I did <laughs> all the time. It's uh, it's it's so good, and I I am I am uh, you know that was originally supposed to be Burt Reynolds. Yes, and I am. Uh, I'm not happy Burt died, but I'm very happy it's Bruce Dern in the movie. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, that That is a good movie. Um, I need to go back and revisit that. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's lower on my list for the reasons it is, but it's still on my top ten list, and I still consider it one of the year's best films. So I'm glad it was higher up on yours. Yay! <laughs> uh, so that was your number four, correct? Indeed. All right, so my number four is Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. Um, I don't know if there was a movie released this year that was probably more (laughs) laser-targeted at my interests. Yes, Um, agreed. Agreed. Terrence Malick's Tree of Life is one of my top five favorite movies of all time. I love it. It is a movie that just causes me to have a spiritual experience every time I watch it. So I'm always curious about where Terrence Malick's going. And for his last three or four films, that answer appeared to be up his own ass. Um, (laughs) Which is not really fair. Uh, Patrick Willems, the YouTube film critic, he's put together a really, really strong essay about what Malick was doing with To the Wonder and Song to Song and Night of Cups and kind of the spiritual... Uh, searching he was doing about his own life. But Malick really has returned with A Hidden Life to deliver, I mean, again, it's not saying much, but it's his most focused film in a long time. Uh, Focused on one story that doesn't really meander a lot from that main plot. This is about an Austrian farmer and his wife uh, during World War II. He's conscripted into the military and he has to decide whether he's going to swear his allegiance to Hitler or deal with the consequences of that. Um, the, the movie I thought most about that about when I was watching this was Silence, um, Martin Scorsese's movie from a few years back, which 
I'll just say up front, is a better movie than this, because Silence is one of my favorite films of the decade. Um, but I know Malick was really impacted by Silence and wrote Scorsese a letter afterwards saying, what does Christ require of us? And this movie feels like his wrestling with that question. Um, it is a theological piece on meditation, or a theological meditation on suffering. Um, it is about the questions that a person of faith asks about their conscience. When is it okay to, you know, give lip service as long as your heart isn't matching up to it? Is that okay? Is it okay to betray your conscience? Um, I'll admit that I think the reason this movie sticks so far with me and, and hits so hard is as a person of faith, watching our country right now and the people I grew up with who taught me, who taught my Sunday school classes, uh, who who instilled their faith in me, as they've thrown their support behind what I feel is evil in our society and wrong, I found so many parallels in this movie. Uh, I, my wife and I have asked the same questions, like, what has become of our nation? And don't people recognize evil when they see it? Uh, so I feel like Malik was making this movie for people, uh, people of faith who have wrestled with this. And he just delivers a gorgeous meditation on suffering, which in the Christian faith is often seen as a beautiful thing. In the midst of all this hardship, it, there is beauty and peace in the middle of suffering. And I think he, he captures that with you know his usual love letter to wheat and grass and animals. <laughs> wheat. wheat. A lot of Fields wheat. of wheat. Yes. <laughs> and, to, quote, to quote Woody Allen, yes. Yes. It, and it is. It's this beautiful meditation on suffering. And I don't think it's for everyone. Um, I, I think it is, you know, it's a three hour long movie about this that is largely told in voiceover and letters. <laughs> and uh, it, you're either going to get on its wavelength or you're not. But uh, I loved it. I was very moved by it. I, yeah, this was, uh, this was Malik doing what I had wanted him to do. And I was greatly moved by it. I think the, uh, I think the cinematography is gorgeous. I think it feels urgent and potent in a way that Malick films haven't in a long time. And uh, again, it's it's just deeply meditative to me. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a hidden life. Yeah, it is. Um, it's it's again, it's a film that I I understand. I get exactly why he wants to do this. It is physically gorgeous. It is one of the most beautifully shot films of the year. And uh, I just couldn't, it just, I, I got, I got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I got totally. it early and I didn't stay with it for that reason, as opposed to silence, which, which did have me the entire time. Uh, and it, I, I left, I, I, I am, I'm one of those, I, I'm, I'm a freak who actually really liked to the wonder. I think to the wonder is excellent. And I think to the wonder wrestles with uh, wrestles, you know, it's to the wonder is about love and it's also (laughs) about faith, which when you side those two things together, makes a lot of sense. And uh, I I just felt that that film covered this ground for me, for Malik. (laughs) And so this felt like this felt like Malik purposefully saying, I'm going to make a big, important statement now. And it was like, well, you 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 made that for me. I know this from you already. Yeah. <laughs> and so the film is 
I, 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 I would have a hard time convincing somebody who was on the fence asking me, like, I don't usually like, you know, I was okay with Tree of Life. Do I go see this? <sighs> I can't tell you to go see this. And I can't tell you, you know, and, and then, you know, to, to ignore the consumer guide aspect of it. Uh, yes, it's beautifully made. There's nothing wrong with it. I just think he's actually done this better and shorter. <laughs> yeah, and this and that's is, where I am with To the Wonder at this point. And I think there is definitely the case that were the current circumstances not what they are right now, this is a movie that could have hit me even totally different. And uh, Yes. And, and I think it, it, there's a very – Malick tends to hit people – very personally, like when people have their Malik movies that resonate with them, it's for a very personal reason. I've noticed, um, like I know Die Hard. Um, oh shoot, what's the uh, Pocahontas movie? A New World. New World. I know Die Hard's on that movie. Uh, yeah. I I love Tree of Life. Uh, Tree of Life hits me very personally. Um, I do like To the Wonder a lot better than Night of Cups and uh, Song to Song, but uh, yeah, that one didn't hit me as hard, but. I, I do like this one quite a bit. This is one that really, I, I, I felt just a very personal connection to it. But I also absolutely understand when people saw it and were like, "Yeah, okay, it, you know, to borrow from another film, it is what it is." But <laughs> and and to be fair for me, and I will, I will g- gladly, as as always, the, the truth, you know, the point is to be honest here. I don't. Uh, my favorite Malick movie by a large margin is Badlands. Okay. First, so I I don't I don't I, uh, watching this film reminds me that I am for better or worse I don't know why but I what I respond most to not exclusively I can respond to things that don't do this but what I what I want most of the time is structured scenes sure. I want a character who wants something enters into a, an exchange where they're trying to get what they want, either gets it or don't get, doesn't get it. And then based on how that came out knows or has to figure out the next step to take. And Malik doesn't do that. It's no, just montage. It's just montage. It's just edit after edit after edit with notes that hit a scenes that hit a single note. They're not dramatic scenes. They are scenes because we use that word to donate a chunk of time in a movie that's all about the same thing. And I, I just, if, unless he's got me, I deaden to it very quickly. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. I don't, I don't care how beautiful that is anymore. I've been looking at beautiful for an hour and a half. I don't have, I got nothing left to give you attention wise. Uh, and I, you know, I, and that happens. That is, that is very much a, that's an aesthetic thing for me. That is not to say that's not, I'm not saying that's not filmmaking, that that's not art. It is absolutely, and there are films I like that do that. Uh, but here I just, I, I kept thinking about films like Silence, even even large chunks of uh, The Thin Red Line. <laughs> like, we covered this. <laughs> and that's why I get stuck on, uh, on A Hidden Life. But it's, and, and again, I'm saying all this about a film that I'm saying is a good film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what the top 10 lists are all about is exactly yep. exactly but i do believe with number three we not only have a narrative film but we have another tie we have the same we movie do number three we and, uh, sync up again would you like to tell people what this movie is 
it is Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, yes. uh, a, 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 a film that I keep accidentally and inadvertently calling Divorce Story. <laughs> I don't know why. Yes, I do. But yes, that's what it is. Uh, uh, containing uh, one of the year's very best performances by Adam Driver and a couple of more superb performances by Scarlett Johansson and Laura Dern. Uh, it's available now on Netflix. It is going to be interesting to see what kind of awards buzz it does. It didn't do nearly as well as I thought it would among the uh, award-bestowing institutions that have announced things thus far, uh, which makes me wonder how it will do with the Academy. Uh, but, oh, this is, uh, yeah, <laughs> excellent, excellent segue from A Hidden Life to say, yes, <laughs> this is the movie that is nothing but well-structured scenes. <laughs> Watching actors, uh, you know, who uh, classically, I, I, I fell in love with movies, Chris, because I like to watch actors act. And boy, there's a lot of actors acting in this movie. And I don't oh, yeah. mean that in a, some sort of, you know, showy way. I mean, I want to watch... I want to watch incredibly talented actors make me think that I'm watching a, a, a human creation in front of me. <laughs> and that's what this film is full of. Everybody is really, really believable. And, uh, and you get sucked into this world and then just get pulverized by one of the most just sickening fights you've ever seen between oh, a yeah. couple that – used to and are still in a relationship because that's really what this movie's about. It's finding that point at which you are still in a relationship but no longer in a relationship <laughs> and exploring that as much as you can get, by, as much as any artist can. Uh, it's, 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 it's just a fabulous piece of work. I think it's, it's Baumbach's most – adult is a terrible word. And I, I, I just, just want to say it's his most ambitious film. Uh, and that it succeeds in its ambitions is just, just as, as Eric Bogosian once said in, in character, it's just the icing on the gravy. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I love a marriage story. Um, it, it's the rare movie that to me plays like a horror movie at times. And yet to say that I think undersells that this is a movie that is also deeply funny and yes. heartbreaking and beautiful and I, I Noah Baumbach has had such a great decade uh you know you think Francis Ha Mistress America while we're young is one I really like Meyerowitz story I I think this though is the culmination this is the movie that to me like you said it's his most ambitious and I feel like it is his the characters are the most fully realized and he gets performance out of performances out of these actors that are just their career best. Uh, Adam Driver, just uh, he's unbelievable here. Uh, just the amount of range he has to show uh, to go from at one point a very an almost comedy of errors, escalating horror social visit to. <laughs> uh-huh. Like you said, the most heart-wrenching argument. It just so uncomfortable to watch him and Scarlett Johansson just screaming at each other, but in a way that never feels like, you know, the most acting. It feels very organic, and you understand how that argument starts and then gets to the place where it does, 
but also the emotions behind that resolution to it as well, um, which I've seen debated a lot uh, that people have kind of brushed off that scene. But I think that is a very perceptive and complex scene, the emotions that both Johansson and Driver are playing. Um, I think she's as good as she's ever been, maybe since I might put under the skin above it. But uh, Scarlett Johansson is fantastic here. Um Laura Dern is always great, and I was really moved by Alan Alda's performance. Alan Alda's great. I love I love Ray Liotta getting to play in a different gear. Yes, I mean he's still he is still um, he's intimidating without being threatening, and that's I, I granted I'm I'm splitting hairs, but boy, when's the last time you picture Ray Liotta not threatening? Yeah, I know. He's... It's been a long time, and he's very good at it. He's a very good actor, and. Uh, I loved his scenes. Uh, it was a pleasure to watch him in that gear, you know, and it was, uh, and yes, everybody, all this fantastic. Laura Dern, I think is almost, it's, it's almost, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's, it just, she makes it look too easy. Yes. <laughs> I actually almost prefer her performance in Little Women just because I feel like that's actually, you gotta, you gotta do a bit more work there. <laughs> Because that character on the page in, in Marriage Story is so good and so rich that you can just run with it. And and if ever there was an actress who was born to run with it, it's Laura Dern. She's so good. Uh, but yeah, it's it is a movie that uh, I, I I I am I am eager to see it over and over again. Oh, see, I don't. <laughs> I I am terrified of the thought of watching this again because it oh. it broke my heart so much to watch it. Like, I remember I was watching it. And I'm about halfway through, and my wife walks in, and I'm like, "We can never watch this movie together. We, <laughs> we, we. I, I cannot do that experience. Um, it, it is too raw of a movie, and yet it is also deeply funny. There's that visit with the social worker, which is just, it's horrifying, and yet it's so funny. And there's the sequence where, you know, it's like, what, the third movie this year that has someone breaking into Sondheim. But it's yes. so wonderful. The Adam Driver, just the way he delivers that scene is you understand why he's doing it, why the character is processing that way. Yes. And it's such a just a, a wonderful scene. Um, and yeah, it's also this heartbreaking story where you see two people who are as close as people can be turned into not strangers at the end, but they are very clearly not intimate parts of each other's lives again. And you feel that change. That's that to me was the thing that, that surprised me the most was how much he makes you feel the idea that these characters are separating and not just distance, but emotionally separate by the end of the movie. And it's, it's effective. It is a, it is a great movie and I highly recommend it as well. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, just one of many great movies that Bombach has done this decade, and another great Netflix movie uh, for all the for all the talk about how Netflix is ruining movies. Netflix has last year delivered one of the best movies uh, in Roma, and this year has delivered several great movies, including some we've already talked about. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm I don't want to say I'm thankful for Netflix, but I am glad that they are. <laughs> They are stepping up where studios aren't really stepping up, and I'm if if I have to watch Noah Baumbach's latest on TV as opposed to not getting to see it, I'll take Netflix. It's fine. 
Yes. What Agreed. Is I will. I will not throw out that particular baby with that particular bathwater. I'm right. good. With, I'm good with it for now. What is your number two, Perry? My number two is going to be Pedro Almodovar's Painting Glory, which is uh, again, it's 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 autobiography. It's veiled autobiography. It's that's that's not even fair. It's it's autobiographical, whether or not it's true. Uh, and it's about an aging director played by Antonio Banderas, who, of course, has worked with Almodovar over and over and over again. Uh, and it is about a director in a lot of physical pain due to his his age and the uh, the, <laughs> the abuses he's put his body through over the years. Uh, and it's about him. Uh, have there's a uh, one of the, a major retrospective is being done of his one of his famous early films. And he goes to visit the actor who co-star who starred in that film, not co-star who starred in that film, and uh, uh, played by an actor I'm, whose name I'm probably going to uh, destroy here, but I think it's Azir Extandia. Extandia. I didn't take high school Spanish. I'm terrible about this. I apologize greatly for ruining that person's name because it's uh, one of my favorite performances of the year along with Banderas in this movie. Uh, and you start to wonder, is that guy supposed to be Banderas and is Banderas playing Almodovar? And that's a really fun game to play if you know your history with Almodovar. And even if you don't, there's such fantastic characters that this stands on its own. It's not – this doesn't work because it's a – it's a it's veiled biography. It works because these this is a really great character. And if nothing else, this is a work of a director who understands a director at a crossroads who doesn't know what exactly they want to do next. And as always in Almodovar, Banderas's characters thinking back on his mother and trying to come to terms with what that relationship meant to him. Uh, there is a uh, there is a, a, a very enjoyable supporting turn by Penelope Cruz another longtime Almodovar partner on screen. Uh, and this is a film that has for me uh, my favorite last scene of the year. It is the type of scene that, that in, in the best way changes everything you've seen before. It puts it all in a different light and not that it's some giant twist not that it's pulling the rug out from under you. It's not an M. Night Shyamalan film. It is a way that makes you go, oh, oh. And you realize how deeply and how expertly uh, Almodovar has managed to pull off uh, a, a vision and, and, and a statement, a very personal statement about, uh, about himself and about himself as an artist. It's a really beautiful piece of work. And again, as we've been saying with all these films, it's very funny. There is the best – if you've ever been uh, to a, a screening uh, where there's a Q&A afterwards with the director, you get treated to the best possible Q&A session ever <laughs> during this movie. <laughs> it is laugh out loud funny. Uh, and, and again, as you've been saying, at the same time, incredibly deep and incredibly powerful and so right for where these characters are and what they're doing in their lives at the moment. Uh, Pain and Glory. It'll be, it'll be everywhere shortly. It'll be out. It, you'll be able to see it. I think it's all – I think it's out of theaters probably already. Banderas uh, – actually, it may come around because Banderas very much in the running for a Best Actor nomination uh, from the Academy. He won the Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival for it. He's gotten a bunch of great buzz, deservedly so, for his work here. I've always been a huge Banderas fan. I think he's a fabulous actor. Uh, 
and it's uh, so you it may come back around, but make time for it. This is this is the kind of film I would like people not to be afraid of if they think they have to go read a movie because <laughs> <laughs> it's way fun. Oh, this is this is one that killed me that I did not get to see. Uh, you told me about it when we back. I think when we recorded The Irishman, my advisor told me about it and said, "Hey, don't don't miss this movie." And so I kept waiting for that screener to arrive and waiting for that screener to arrive, and it never arrived. And I was so frustrated uh, because everyone has told me great things about this. So Pain and Glory, as soon as it comes out, I am going to the theater to see it, and uh, I will not miss that one. I was very frustrated that the opportunity did not come up uh, to see it beforehand. I had to miss the screening, I think, for class, but I will definitely look out for that one. Are you familiar with Mike Almodovar? I'm not. I'm not. I be, I'm, I'm interested very much then to see. I mean, I, I can't help but come at it with a, a great appreciation and love for his body of work. So I am curious how it will play for someone who is less, uh, who has lived with that world less okay. than I have. So I'm, I, I'm very, I, I, not that I think it'll be a problem. I'm just curious. It will be, you will have a different reaction to it. Not that it won't be just as wonderful. But I'm I'm very curious to see how that plays. Oh, and I can't wait to see this. I will uh, I will definitely follow up with you on that. My number two is your number six. Uh, it is Parasite, Bong Joon Ho's. Oh, that's what was in the basement. Oh, good. Okay, <laughs> hey, that's good. Don't let him out. Uh, <laughs> I said that Knives Out was the most fun I've had with a movie all year, and I mean that. Parasite is the best theatrical experience I've had all year. I had the delight of going into Parasite without seeing a trailer, without knowing what it was about, without even knowing what genre movie this was going to be. I sat down because I had heard so much good things about this, because I have enjoyed Bong Joon-ho's films in the past, and I buckled up and it took me on a roller coaster ride. Uh, and I, I mean that in a good way, not the Scorsese way of saying it. <laughs> in terms of, it's not it's not a roller coaster ride that is an empty thrill. Uh, it's not a Marvel movie. This is a movie that you buckle up, and it flings you around from comedy to heist movie to drama to I don't want to say sci-fi, but kind of kissing the edges of that to social satire i did not domestic comedy domestic comedy uh, horror movie there's there's horror in here it is a movie that just from one minute to the next is not the same movie i didn't know if i was going to be laughing or screaming one moment to the next and sometimes i was doing both at the same time i adored parasite uh, Bong Joon Ho is like a cynical Steven Spielberg. He he knows how to hold an audience in the palm of his hand and direct its attention, and then spin a story that is usually about a world that is broken, and the only way out is to kind of burn it all down. Um, thematically, he's playing with a lot of the same issues as Snowpiercer, which is another movie I really like, but he's playing in a whole other league here. Uh, I, I, there's so much going on in this movie. 
And for people who haven't seen it, I don't want to say too much. But there is interplay between the characters here that works so well. He switches power dynamics with a sentence or with a turn of the camera. He switches our sympathies. Like, uh, in the same scene, our sympathies ping-pong back from one family to another, from one character to another. He's able to showcase a character's shame through just a simple sniff. Um, There are sequences in this movie that are just exquisitely intense to watch, where the characters are in situations that I can't even describe how they got there, but it all makes sense in the moment. And then he caps it off with a moment of physical violence that could be horrifying or hilarious or both at the same time. And he plays with visuals to enhance the scene. There's an upstairs downstairs motif that really makes a lot more sense once you know where this movie's going. And it just turns into this funny, horrifying, sad, touching bit of social satire that feels dangerous. And, uh, I love this movie. I cannot wait to watch it again. I This is a movie I really can't wait to introduce to people just to watch their faces <laughs> at about the hour mark and, and yep. watch that dawning realization of what's going on. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I, this, is, this is a great, fun, and thoughtful movie. Uh, it, it's about something. It's It's making a statement, and it feels dangerous at places um yeah i i love this i love the ensemble in this i I think they play really well together uh yeah this is just this is a delight to watch this is a i I think i use this with knives out which would make a really great companion piece to this movie um it's delicious it it is a (laughs) meal it is you savor this movie and enjoy every bite and i love parasite it is it is great it's a, it is a ton of fun. I love how much of a slow build that first hour is. Mm-hmm. That it's not. I mean, you think you're watching a, 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 a comedy of manners and a domestic comedy and a little bit of a statement about the social stratus in in Korea, uh, and then 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 it turns. And I don't want to say it turns into something else because it's still all that. It just <laughs> reveals more of its world. But it turns yep. and it keeps turning uh and yeah it is it is beautifully acted it is it is uh i, I guess the i guess the kind i guess the kindness will be fiendishly plotted yes yes <laughs> i think that's i think that's how i'd like to say it um and it does it it, it genuinely surprises and that's uh, that's always a pleasure it is it, it, it's a blast it is something it is something <laughs> And I, it's it's I'm trying to not use words, not because I'm trying to damn with faint praise. Like I said, this is number six on my list, but just because, as you said, the less you know going in, the better. Yep. And uh, it is it, it is something. It is worth seeing. Yes, it is. This is the movie not to be afraid of subtitles for. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, just visually, it's so much fun to watch too. Uh, the way he the the house in this movie is such a masterpiece of production design, uh, and the way he explores that geography is really fascinating. Like you know mm-hmm. this house intimately by the end, but he also uses the different 
rooms and levels of this house to say so much about the character's power dynamics and who has power at what moment. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it, it's great. Uh, I, I can't wait for people to see it and email us and let you, let us know what you thought about it because it is, it's a ride and uh, it, it is a very good ride. And a shout out for how beautifully written each of the characters are. Cause they are all very different. Yes. And very on point. And I mean that dramatically. I don't mean that they represent something. They're just very distinct voices. It, it is a really it's a really well written film. Yes. I I love this movie. I love this movie so much, but not quite enough to make it my number one movie of the year. <laughs> Perry, I think we have a tie. For our number one movie I, of the year. We do. I cannot believe we lined up exactly on three different. We did not discuss this ahead of time. <laughs> no, we didn't. We and, just. We, and, uh, yeah, we traded uh, this morning, uh, traded our list, and number one just happened to be the same. I mean, it's Avengers Endgame, and we are, you know, just, just really proud. No, <laughs> what's our number one? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, it's, it's, it's Captain Marvel. Oh I yeah! Mean, if we're gonna, if we're you know, if we're gonna really drill this down, you look at you look at the production. No, no, it's not. Good. <laughs> it's the Irishman. We yes. spent an hour and a half talking about it this year. Of course, it's our favorite film of the year. Of course, right now it's going to be at the top of our list. As we both acknowledged, it could totally be different in a while. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You know what, Chris? I have seen it twice now. Oh, have you? And I and I I will say, it's even better than we thought. <laughs> It's 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 remarkably tight. I know that's a funny thing to say about a three and a half hour movie, <laughs> but it 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 really is. Uh, you know, I I don't know what more we want to say. Like I said, anybody who wants to know can go back and dig through a very long, very detailed, very enjoyable conversation we had about this movie. Uh, I've got nothing new to report, uh, other than to say, uh, uh, again, I don't think I gave. Enough, I know we talked about it a little bit. But uh, a lot of credit to Steve Zalian. This is a really great script. Yes. This is a this is a remarkably structured script where there you know it's it's not a quiet movie. There's dialogue throughout, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel it. It doesn't feel verbose. Part of that is Frank himself doesn't really talk much. It's everybody else talking around him. Um, but it's the kind of movie that like like the godfather manages to throw a lot of weight in the phrase you know i'll make him an offer he can't refuse uh (laughs) this does even more with even less the phrase it is what it is Mm -hmm. which becomes this horrific mantra and to to that phrase is so prevalent now in in our popular culture and in our society to put the weight on it that this that this movie does is just another reason to really love how really good and how really deep uh the irishman digs uh yes a hidden life is is a meditation on on faith and religion and uh and this is a meditation on death Yes. And how we feel about when we're actually faced with that and how we deal with death through our lives uh, affects how we're going to approach it when we face it ourselves. It's a really good movie. It, it is a great movie. Um, I, looking back through my list, one thing I noticed was a lot of my movies this year dealt with 
the inevitability of death, waiting for someone to die, a world that might not exist anymore. And so it felt like the Irishman was kind of like, and now it's the final word on that. Um, so much, <laughs> so much of the discourse this year, though, in film circles, has been about this idea of what is cinema, and it's been Martin Scorsese leading this conversation, um, maybe to his chagrin a lot of times, but leading this idea of, well, okay, when you go to the movies, what's the experience you're going to get? What what is different than you know a Disney backed billion dollar blockbuster and a Martin Scorsese movie. And he was leading that conversation through most of the year. And really, his track record should have been enough to give him the authority on that. But if he had been leading that discussion and the Irishmen were not great, that would be, you know, that that looked kind of bad. Instead, he <laughs> yes. delivers he delivers a movie that really, the more I think about it too... You know, I I bring up Avengers Endgame as a joke, but that was the movie he was really kind of digging against, was those Marvel movies. And it's really this kind of object lesson. Like, they both are using many of the same tools at their disposal. The Irishman and Avengers Endgame are both three-hour, sprawling stories that really kind of depend on you understanding what the filmmakers have done before. They both use age-defying makeup. Mm Mm-hmm. But what's the difference? What's the difference in your experience? Avengers Endgame, you're going to have a disposable experience. You're going to have a movie that you go in, and I had a good time with it. I laughed at it. I enjoyed it. I'm a fan of those movies. I forgot it by the time I walked across the lobby at the end of it. Martin Scorsese takes those same resources and delivers something that haunted me. Still haunt. If the final shot of this movie still yeah. rattles me when I think about it. And that is cinema. That is an experience that can change you. You can think about life differently when you have seen this movie because the only difference between a Frank Sheeran and us are the lives you live before that death, but you're still <laughs> approaching the same fate, which is the point of this movie. We all end up at the same point. And this movie is haunting, and yet it's also... I, I, I don't find this movie a slog either. I found it highly enjoyable to watch whether it was an enjoyable funny moment like the meeting where there's the argument over shorts or just watching (laughs) joe pesci deliver the kind of performance that you dream someone comes out of retirement for (laughs) it's true i I mean true it it just feels like this is the summation of martin scorsese a lot of the themes he's wrestled with through his whole career his final word on the mob movies that he's made his entire career. It, like, I I am sure we will get more films from him. I look forward to getting more films from him. If this was the last Martin Scorsese film, I'd look at it and go, well, that's fitting. Like, it, Yes. And I don't know how I can look at a movie like that and say, it's not my favorite movie of the year. <laughs> like, it's Yeah, that, exactly. And yeah, on any given day, I might want to watch Parasite or I might want to watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood more. But The Irishman is, to me, the movie of the year. I, I, I As soon as I saw it, I was like, it's going to take a lot to push this out of my top spot. And nothing did. Did you have any uh, honorable mentions? You know, um, not really. As I said, I was struggling. You know, I threw over 10 films 
out of my going through my list one at a time and thinking, would this make my top ten list? And I had ten films, and I'm trying to think of the ones I kind of wavered on. You know, I I I I I I truly considered if you know, like I said, it's a snapshot. I truly considered. Uh, I I thought for a half second, would I put Joker in my top ten? Especially talking with you, just to make a point, <laughs> you know. And truly not as a joke. I mean, I, I think the film is that interesting. And if I was going to take a, you know, if I was going to state, take a step back from this and make a top 10 list that were, you know, the 10 films that kind of defined the year, it's hard not to consider that movie. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that I'm, I'm still thinking about Joker. Um, uh, and off the top of my head, uh, let me see. I got my whole list right here. I don't think so. I l- literally did just have these. 10. Yeah, that that really was it. I mean, there's other stuff I really liked this year. Uh, there are obviously films that would be in the next five for sure. The, uh, the, uh, the, the funeral most accept, uh, the farewell most obviously. Um, uh, I, I quite liked the sheer agitprop of uh, the laundromat, the Soderbergh film. <laughs> that's on netflix now uh i think bombshell does really interesting things uh i can't wait to talk about that in a couple of weeks when it opens uh i very much like little women the greta gerwig movie is really strong and a really again like uh like we talked earlier a really fantastic second film from someone who made a really good first film uh something that shows that they can do uh, different things than what they did just in their first film. And yet still it feels like the natural follow-up to that first film. Uh, so yeah, it's, it was, it's, it's been, a, it, it was a very good year. It was, I had for the longest time, my number 10 was uncut gems. Um, <laughs> it, a movie that I don't like, I can't say I enjoy because it is not enjoyable <laughs> at all. It is a two hour panic attack. And it's, I think Adam Sandler is very good in it. Um, But I I appreciate a movie that can tear me apart, like that that can make me that much of a bundle of nerves. Uh, And I appreciate the technique. But at the end of the day, I also know I will never go back and watch that movie. And I don't think it resonates the way other movies do. I think it is a movie with a really strong Adam Sandler performance that generates tension very well that a day later I wasn't thinking about much at all. Uh, (laughs) And then there were a lot of almost, I did want to really mention uh, there was a Japanese movie, a Japanese zombie movie called one cut of the dead that came out earlier this year. And I really considered that for my number 10, just because this is really a great example of an independent film crew working on a meager budget to take a genre that is so familiar that it's all cliche by now and doing something very clever and new. It is a movie about a film crew making a zombie movie when a zombie apocalypse breaks out, but about (laughs) 30 minutes in it, it, it. And that sounds like a very cliche, silly. Why would I bother with this? 30 minutes in, there is a twist. there, And, and it reveals <laughs> what this movie really is. And it sets up something that is totally different than you'd expect, which culminates in 
the fi- the final 30 minutes of this are some of the most clever filmmaking, clever independent <laughs> filmmaking I've seen all year. It, the way where this movie ends up, when you see what it's doing, it's like, oh, this is a really smart idea. Um, and it, it's a cheap movie. It was made with people who I believe were in a film class together. And it was just kind of thrown together as this little Japanese independent film. It is highly enjoyable and very clever and structurally does things that I haven't seen a genre movie like this do. Uh, so I highly recommend that. It's on Shudder. Um, Apollo 11, the Apollo documentary, is really strong. Um, that was on my list for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And I kind of waffled on Jojo Rabbit. Uh, it, there's a lot in Jojo Rabbit I really like, um, but there's a lot that doesn't doesn't quite work for me. But I, I appreciate its heart. Um, and, and Sam Rockwell in it. Yeah, I I I like Jojo Rabbit. I I don't think it. I don't think it. I I, I it's it's not as offensive as you think it is, and it's not as deep as you think it is. Yeah, <laughs> so like, like it's it's a very fine movie. It's right uh, down the that, middle. A, that attempts some things and pulls off some of those things. I am. Uh, I am. Uh, I am. <laughs> Rockwell's such an interesting figure, man. He 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 is able to be so energetic, and sometimes that needs to be reined in by the director. I, I don't blame him. I blame a director who gets lost in letting him run. And I I I, I for for every time this was on, every time the sequences with him are happening in that movie. All I can think about is you couldn't decide <laughs> exactly what you wanted to do comedically with those sequences. And so you you should have never bothered with Rebel Wilson. Oh no. Not no. that I hate Rebel Wilson, but like that's a different energy. And that's a that's the, and it's not an energy that helps you in any capacity understand what you're trying to do here (laughs) um and i felt like he sort of let rockwell go and he gets to be really broad and really ridiculous and that's why imaginary hitler's there (laughs) so i'm like you're that character isn't necessary and it just feels like it's there to get laughs at how outrageous it is and so I, for me, it's a really weak point in the structure of the movie that the character is even there. And that sort of like affects my feeling about the performance, <laughs> if that makes any amount of sense. And plus, he takes and makes Richard Jewell worth – if you think Richard Jewell is worth watching, it's because of Sam Rockwell's performance. So I've seen him be great this year. <laughs> yeah, he, he is very strong in Richard Jewell, as is Kathy Bates. Um in an otherwise unremarkable movie. But, uh, uh, yeah. And I think that's, that's pretty much. And I was I okay with Jojo Rabbit. I understand if somebody really likes Jojo, it's Scarlett Johansson who is, who is sort of, I don't want to say revelatory cause she's been so good in a lot of stuff, but she's good there in a way. I haven't seen her quite be good. I haven't seen that gear out of her. And, uh, it's really good. It's, it's, it's really kind of sweet. How, how melancholic that performance is without ever tipping that off. <laughs> yes. She's very good in that too. But I think yeah. I saw that right after I saw marriage story, which kind of 
I, I still gravitate more towards her in Marriage Story. Oh, much, much better part, much yeah. bigger part. Yes, absolutely. And then the one that surprised me and has stuck with me, and I think it's a lot of it is because of how much I was dreading it, was uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers oh. movie, which <laughs> uh-huh. was not the cloying, mawkish movie I thought it was going to be. I thought it, I, I thought it was a very well done... I, I don't want to say enjoyable because it it does lean into kind of some bitterness and you know it, the the main character is purposefully very prickly, um, but I really like the way Tom Hanks kind of embodied decency and the whole movie seemed to be an ode to that decency, and I would probably like that a lot more had there not been a wonderful documentary about Mister Rogers last year that kind of makes this one unnecessary. But uh, but I did enjoy it and it's like it's it's picture of a good person and kindness stuck with me longer than I thought it would. But uh, yeah, it was for me. There's, the 10. there's the old John Ford quote about how, you know, a great movie is three good scenes and no bad ones. Mm-hmm. And for me, that movie is three good scenes and uh, too many bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, the stuff that's good. Like I dreaded it from the trailer. Uh, And because of – and it it played out for me in the movie exactly this way. I found Hanks grating and terrible when he's playing the part on screen, when he's playing Fred Rogers on screen. It's not – it's this weird – it's not – it's Hanks. That's all I can see. I don't see Fred Rogers at all in those sequences. And that's how they start the movie with that framing device. And I was like, this is as bad as I thought it was going to be. And then when we cut into the actual movie and we deal with the plot of the movie, this he's wonderful. It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very strong Hanks performance. See, outside I, of that, I, those scenes, the long conversations between the two of them are fantastic. And it's not that he's, I think I'm watching Fred Rogers, but I do think I'm watching an actor play a part, you know, Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to watching, a director cash in on the goodwill that is Tom Hanks, <laughs> which is exactly what those opening that that framing device feels like. And I think, I'm um, oh, sorry. So yeah, I think because I wasn't a huge Mister Rogers kid growing up, the the opening scenes didn't bother me. It, it didn't like I didn't feel like I was watching anything fake. I felt like oh, this is an in. This allows me to kind of suspend my disbelief a bit. Um, and because I was so prepared that I was not going to accept Tom Hanks in that role, it kind of <laughs> eased me in, and I realized that what he was doing is not a full impersonation of Mr. Rogers. I really just like the way he embodied that decency and the kindness, which is just rare. It, it, it like it, that's that's the thing I keep thinking of whenever I think of Mr. Rogers these days is just the rarity of that. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, um, the top ten were my top ten, and I was very happy with uh, how it shook out in the end. And that brings us to the end of 2019. Indeed. And uh, we will be back. Uh, We are doing best of the decade in January. Get ready, man. Get ready. I am. It's going to be good. (laughs) Well, in the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? You can find me at, uh, on Facebook at Perry Cyber, Twitter at Perry Loves Film. You can hear me on WLBY in Ann Arbor every Friday about 9.40, 9.45 a.m. talking about new stuff. And you can usually find me f- center the third row at your local multiplex. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. Uh, you can find my movie reviews now at Big Head Media. Uh, Big Head Pop Culture, I'm sorry, which is found at bhmpopculture.com. That's where Michigan Sports Entertainment has rolled its uh, entertainment re- reporting and reviews into. So the same place you find this podcast is the same place you'll find my movie reviews, which will make it nice and easy for you. Or you can just follow me on Twitter or Facebook, and I'll have them up there as well. And we're going to take a little bit of a break to uh, enjoy the Christmas season, but we will be back in January, and uh, most hopefully we will be sitting here in person talking film. Yes. uh, I am really looking forward to that. Perry, have a wonderful Christmas. You do as well, Chris. Take care of those beautiful children of yours. You do the same. Listeners, have a great Christmas. I will. Thank you for listening to us for the first year. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting back on schedule now that school's done and really getting you guys some really great stuff in the coming year. So we got some fun stuff planned, and we will see you in 2020.